Welcome to the first episode of Learn Your Stripes. This episode is about looking and acting the part on the field. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Moran. I'm a head linesman in the uh, IHSAA, uh, and I'm also a field judge in the Heartland Collegiate uh, Conference as well. I'm Ryan Guillory. I'm a line judge in the IHSAA, and I'm actually on the same crew as Michael. I'm also a staff official in the Heartland, working primarily as a line judge and a headline judge. The purpose of this podcast, at least initially, is to cover the new IHSAA football officials mechanics manual and best practices for a crew of five. We certainly recognize that a 93-page document can be intimidating to read. It's our objective to provide another means of learning the manual through a series of short audio snippets. It is also our objective to demystify the changes and emphasize how much has remained the same. A review of the new manual shows that the IHSAA has not reinvented the wheel. Over time, we're gonna move into rules, both high school and college, and we'll add some guests as well. But for now, we're gonna focus on the new mechanics manual. And although we're covering the new uh, manual in this podcast, it's it's strictly for educational purposes. It's neither approved or sanctioned by the IHSAA. Nothing discussed in this podcast has been discussed with anyone from that organization at all. It's merely our interpretation of the mechanics and the manual after we've looked it over and, and taken a review of it. The first section of the manual discusses uniform and equipment. The good news here, assuming you've had the uniform required last year for the tournament already with the new shirt, there's nothing new. The IHSA has transitioned, of course, from the old patch system to shirts with the sublimated IHSAA logo. Whether it's long or short sleeves or the inclement weather shirt or jacket, all shirts are required to have two and a quarter inch black and white stripes with no side panel, black knit cuffs, and a Byron collar. All members of the crew must wear the same shirt during a game. Now, we are allowed to have position plackets on the shirts, but all five members of the crew must have this if the crew wants to use them. During the transition with the new insignia, all newly purchased shirts must have the sublimated IHSAA insignia. You can still order a general patch from the IHSAA and place it on the left shoulder of the older shirts, one and a half inch below the shoulder seam. Newly ordered shirts can contain a tournament and or professional insignia, with the vendors having lists to confirm that if you order it. The American flag can be included only on the right sleeve of the shirts. Association insignia are limited to the jacket, but memorial patches may be worn with permission from the IHSAA officials department. Otherwise, it's still black pants with a one and one quarter inch white vertical stripe down the side, black socks, black football shoes with black laces, of course, shine before every game, a black baseball cap with white piping for everyone but the referee who wears a solid white cap, a black leather belt, either one and one fourth to two inches in width with a plain buckle, a black jacket, which can be worn pre-game or post-game, and a possible black and white vertically striped jacket with black knit cuffs in inclement weather. Again, all five crew members must wear it. Equipment hasn't changed either. All crew members have to have the same color bean bag. Some can carry contrasting colors uh, with the first as long as there's a second color uh, of each one. Each member has to have at least one penalty flag, a black or silver whistle with a lanyard, preferably black, uh, some some way to keep track of downs, uh, a game information card with a pen or pencil. The referee needs to have a coin, the back judge, and at least one other crew member should have a watch or a timing device to keep track of the game and the play clock if necessary. The H needs to have one clip, two is preferred and, and usually works out better. The umpire should have a device to keep track of the ball's lateral location as well as a gauge to measure the air pressure in the balls. The crew must have at least one spare whistle, although really preferred each, each official carries their own whistle just in case.
crews are also allowed to use uh, O2Os or radios, uh, which the vast majority are already doing that, and the radios need to have a dedicated frequency. Sunglasses are generally prohibited, but in the following circumstances, you can wear them. When they're prescribed by a physician or optometrist and is required for game wear, during pregame when conditions are extremely sunny, or during a game played while the sun is out and when needed to perform at optimal level. Sunglasses should always be removed when speaking with a coach and should be hidden when not being used. If you're going to use them, the lenses must be black or gray with no mirrored finish. Frames also must be black and they must be of a sporting style. Prescription sunglasses do not have to meet these requirements, of course, and if one crew member wears them, the others are not required to wear them as well. Let's talk whistle mechanics now. The old axiom always applies here. Be a crew saver, not a crew killer. Keep the whistle out of your mouth while the ball is alive, so as to lessen the risk of inadvertent whistles. Now, you can have it in or at your mouth if you might have to call a pre-snap penalty, but drop it at the snap. At the end of the play, when using the whistle, see leather. That is, see a dead ball in player possession. A slow whistle, of course, is better than an inadvertent one. The manual states not to blow the whistle on a play outside of your area of responsibility and indicates that there should be no more than one or two whistles at the end of any given play. The whistle must be blown sharply and confidently to end the play. It can be repeated to stop the action. Of course, as always, use short repeated blasts if there's a penalty, an injury, a fight, or some other need to get the rest of the crew's attention. The new manual discourages, but does not prohibit, the use of finger whistles as they make it difficult, if not impossible, to blow the whistle and signal for an incompletion or to kill the clock. And I think one thing I'd like to highlight here, Ryan, a lot of officials have experienced an inadvertent whistle. It, it happens to all of us at some point or another. The old adage, if, if somebody says they've never had one, look out because it's, it's probably going to happen. And I, speaking from experience, I've had a couple myself. Just be patient and make sure you know what you see before you blow that whistle. We've all been there. It always happens. But the objective is to prevent it from happening and to keep working hard at it. Absolutely. Uh, we'll talk about flags and uh, flag mechanics here. Nothing has changed. Uh, everyone should carry at least one flag. Two is, is honestly better because, again, you just never know. Uh, keep one tucked in the front of your belt. Uh, use black tape to kind of cover the ball uh, rather than having it exposed with yellow. It's a better look. And if you have your second one, I, I generally tuck mine kind of in the back. Some people do it in their back pocket, but have a second one on hand in case you need it. Uh, the flag should be thrown straight in the air on dead ball fouls. Uh, that way you can get everyone's attention and the spot of, in that case doesn't really matter. On live ball fouls, the flag really needs to be placed at a spot because that's where the foul occurred and you might be enforcing from that penalty. After you've thrown your flag, continue to officiate the, the play and don't give up on it. And if the flag didn't land in the spot you intended, once the play is over, go move it. Uh, and move it by hand. P actually pick it up and carry it to the spot it should be. Don't just give it another toss. Officials not involved in calling or enforcing the foul should cover the flag just in case and make sure it doesn't move. Leave it there until the enforcement spot's incomplete. And the manual makes a good point not to throw the flag directly at a player, but in a manner which you kind of get it on a specific yard line. Don't throw anything that looks confrontational or accusatory or over aggressive. We're just trying to get the foul or we're trying to signify that there's a foul and get the flag out, you know, on that yard line. Yeah, I think those are good points. And it's important to remember a flag isn't, about the calling official and the referee. All five officials have to work together, covering the flag, making sure the enforcement's correct. Uh, every time a flag goes down, all five officials need to be engaged and involved in enforcing that foul um, and making sure that we're starting the next play 
uh, where we're supposed to be going on the correct down. Similar to the uh, penalty flag mechanics or beanbag mechanics. And as with flag mechanics, there's no real changes here either. The manual merely spells out the use and purpose of the beanbag. And those four primary purposes are to mark the spot where player possession is lost by a fumble or backward pass when the spot could be a penalty enforcement spot. Beanbags are also used to mark the end of a scrimmage kick, to mark a spot of first touching by K, or to mark a spot where R or B secures possession of a kick, recovery, or an interception inside the five, and the momentum exception may uh, not apply. The beanbag is to be dropped, not thrown, on the appropriate yard line in those situations when it's appropriate to do so. If it's not at the right location, as with the flag, we can certainly fix it after the play. It should only be used by an official who sees a live ball come out of player possession. We don't need five beanbags every time there's a loose ball. Only fumbles and backward passes are bagged, not loose balls. It should not be used for losses of possession in or behind the neutral zone, according to the manual, as that's a loose ball play and penalties will be enforced either from the previous spot or the spot of the foul. When it comes to kicks, the beanbag is used to mark the spot of first touching by K. On free kicks, it's really good practice for the back judge and the line judge to have a beanbag in their hand at the time of the kick so that they can be ready to mark the spot of first touching if K touches the ball before K is allowed to do so. If there is an onside kick that we anticipate and we have four crew members move up, each should have a beanbag in their hand at the time of the kick. On free kicks, R should also have a bag in his hand or her hand in order to mark the spot of the momentum exception. When it comes to scrimmage kicks, the bag is used by the covering official to mark the spot of first touching by K beyond the neutral zone. Usually it's going to be the back judge who will use a primary beanbag for first touching and a contrasting color for the end of the kick. Though the back judge and the line judge should have their contrasting color bag in their hand at the time of the snap on a punt. Covering officials use bags to mark the spot where B or R gains possession of a kick, fumble, or interception inside the five-yard line in those cases where we might have to deal with the momentum exception. H, L, and B also use it to mark a spot where A or K intentionally leaves the field and will use a flag for the spot of the return. H may also use a beanbag in a time-sensitive situation to mark the first down spot if the down box is slow getting down the field and will use it in goal-to-go situations when the chains are down in order to place the spot of the down on each play. Finally, in the event of an inadvertent whistle, we should drop a bag at the yard line where the ball was located at the time of the whistle. It's only used to mark an out-of-bounds or forward progress spot if there's an altercation or such. As with a flag, if we drop a beanbag, we should keep officiating thereafter. I think it's a really good important point that any time you you know, drop something, you're so focused on that spot, you got to remember that the action's still going on. And Ryan, I think you and I being on the sideline, we sometimes can take advantage of being on that sideline and having a yard marker, you know, right at our feet that we can work with. And that's something I'm trying to work on too. We don't have to, you know, if there's a foul or a fumble in the middle of the field, we don't have to chuck it, you know, 25 yards out there. We can drop it there and sometimes it's more accurate, but that's something I'm trying to work on. Yeah, I, I think it's our instinct. If we see a fumble that occurs to the hashes, we want to get a beanbag out near the hash mark. Whereas sure. it's merely, it's a yard marker. It's not uh, a specific spot marker. So um, whether it's at our feet on the sideline or two yards into the field, 
we just need to know the location uh, where the yard line is if for penalty enforcement or the like, uh, or an altercation out of bounds. Uh, as long as we're able to find that yard line after the play is over, we're going to be in good shape. Absolutely. Let's talk about what you're taking out on the field in terms of writing things down. Uh, it's important to have a, a game card and a pen or pencil. I, I prefer a pencil. You know, you can erase it. Some people prefer a pen. It's really kind of your choice. Uh, but everyone should have something that, that way you can write down, you know, timeouts or any sort of possession changes, especially between quarters, who's got the ball, where we're going, what's the line to gain. Um, predominantly your headlinesman on the, uh, is going to be taking care of that. Um, the other important thing to note is the coin toss, you know, who, who had what options, who chose to kick, who's receiving, who deferred, and then that's going to parlay into the second half. You need to know who, who to go talk to for the second half options as well. Also, we're looking at talking about any names or numbers for disqualified players or in sportsmanlike conduct penalties we have to report and any other team personnel that might need to be disqualified or any report that you may potentially have to write up after the game. It's good to always take uh, maybe an extra note card or something along those lines. Uh, and I know one thing on our crew, Ryan, we're trying to do too is track our penalties that helps us get better and we can go back and review our film. So it's always good to take something to something to write with and something to write on, as we say, just so you can make notes during the game. And I'll say during those during those fouls or those timeouts, take that time to really write things down. Uh, the clock has stopped, and we have the time, the advantage to to do that. And that way, we don't have to scramble and think, "Oh, who was that foul on, or where did we go from here?" We have the time to do that. It's also important too to write down the team names, the colors, the coaches' names, and the captains' numbers, and uh, the game time and the score, just in case there's ever sort of any issues with the clock or the scoreboard. We can keep track of that if we need to. So. Right. Yeah, it's just good practice. Every time there's a score, every time uh, we get together for the conference afterwards, make sure we have the time listed because if something screwy happens on the free kick that follows, uh, it's important to know what that time was instead of just guessing at it. When it comes to ball handling, the manual directs us with what we already know. We're not supposed to let the ball hit the ground. It just looks better. We use short underhand throws, we don't pass the ball over players, throw intentionally high passes, or try to trap the ball with our feet. Once a play is over, we should complete dead ball officiating before retrieving a ball. This is especially true for people like me and you who are working on the sidelines. Don't turn away from players who might be near one another just to try to save a few seconds. If a play ends out of bounds, we should not leave the spot on the sideline to retrieve the ball. Hold the spot, observe the out-of-bounds action, and wait for either the back judge or the referee to go into the sidelines and get the ball. If a play ends in a side zone or out-of-bounds, behind the neutral zone, or less than five yards downfield, the referee should assist in relaying the ball to the umpire as the point in a triangle relay. Now, the reverse of that, if a play ends in a side zone or out-of-bounds more than five yards downfield, the back judge should come up and assist as the point in the triangle re uh, relay. Long and complete passes shouldn't be retrieved. We should just get a new ball from the ball boy or girl on the sideline. Those ball boys or ball girls should never step foot onto the field. Only the five officials are on the field. They can certainly toss us a ball from a couple yards away. If it's raining, the umpire should use a towel to clean the ball as needed and to shield it after it's set until the offense gets to the line. The umpire has to go sideline to sideline to retrieve the ball, either when the time is critical or the offense is in a hurry up mode. Now, as we've always done on a try or a field goal, the back judge should ensure that the scoring team's ball personnel have a new ball behind the end line uh, in order for them to bring out for the ensuing free kick. 
And I think this is one of those things that can really make a crew look sharp. Like you said, talk about not letting the ball hit the ground and, and it, we want to save those, those seconds to get that ball back in play, but sometimes taking that extra two seconds to make sure play has cleared can actually kind of make things move a little smoother and keep good game management. So, yeah, it's part of the whole appearance thing, looking the part, you know, we want to have nice uniforms, want shoes polished, shirts and pants pressed. Uh, but if you look sharp when you're getting the ball in and out, uh, it's going to give a better impression than if the ball's bouncing all around the field, if we're chasing after it uh, on the ground. Um, you know, part of being an official is looking the part. The rest of it's getting the mechanics and the rules right. Absolutely. And speaking of dead ball officiating, we'll go to the part of the manual that talks about dead ball intervals. And there's three that it covers. There's the pre-snap interval between the ball being made, ready for play, and the beginning of the next play. There's the time between the end of a play and the pre-snap interval of the next play. Then there's the intermission after a score and before that ensuing kickoff. So a pre-snap routine here is, is imperative. Um, if you don't have one, you know, start putting one together in your head, get to know it, get to love it. Prior to the snap, according to the manual, each crew member should confirm the down, the distance, the line to gain, and time on the game clock. And if there's any disagreement, shut the play down and get together and talk about it. It's also important to count the players and – Signal to the crew that you have 11. Obviously, the, the uh, umpire referee counting the offense, line judge and back judge counting the defense. Um, and in any certain circumstance, signal things like uh, double sticks, you're, we're killing the clock on a fourth down, or if you have an unbalanced line, or if you have any potential numbering exceptions, uh, that's something that your umpire can help out with in that case. Uh, when the play is over, uh, be on the lookout for any extra activities, any personal fouls or unsportsmanlike conducts, or just anything that could result in things getting chippy, like a retaliation. Uh, if you're not the covering official, watch the action away from the ball uh, during and after the play. It doesn't do us any good to have all five officials looking at one spot, so cover the whole field. Uh, when the play ends out of bounds, h &L should kill the game clock with the two stop the clock signals that's over the head and hold that spot. If the play ends up, and we kind of talked about if the, where the play ends up, the R should hustle in there to the bench and help clear things out. If it's downfield, the back judge can come in and help everybody clear out too. Um, once everybody kind of comes out of the bench, turn back towards the sideline and just continue to observe the action and make sure everybody goes back to their respective huddles. All officials should pinch in if the game starts to get a little chippy. Um, and sometimes you hear the phrase, according, according, it's a tough word to say. Everybody coming in together, the, the R's coming up, the wings are coming up, and just making your presence known. Um, a lot of times your voice is just as good as a whistle. Play's over, we're done, stop. Stop is always a good one. And if there's any kind of scuffle that's going on, be, be alert and be ready to know who started it. And if you need to get a number, get a number. Uh, also establishing that presence, too, I think you can – prevent a lot of things from happening. You can relay to your co opposing coach or your coach. If there may be an issue, you can say, coach, you know, take a look at for number 32. He seems to be getting a little excited and the coach can kind of help in that situation too. Um, then once all the action stopped, then we have any administrative duties, we can take care of those. And then we start it all over again. Yeah. I made some reference to this earlier with the game card, but the manual specifies that after a score or try and prior to a free kick, the crew should meet briefly at the 10-yard line in the center of the field before we go to our free kick positions. I know in the past it's always been a little bit uh, muddy as to where exactly we go. Some crews meet on the goal line, some meet at the three, some at the five. Uh, according to the manual, we go to the center of the field, the 10-yard line, 
There we discuss any issues that have arisen or that we might expect might be coming up. From there, we jog to our free kick positions after going to the sideline and then go up the sideline to our respective positions. After we reach our free kick position, that's when we're supposed to mark our game card as needed. So that's where we record the time of the score, the points, who scored it. Now at that point, once we get to our free kick positions, the referee should look to the back judge who's timing the 60 second interval before the ball is marked ready for play. After 45 seconds, the referee notifies the crew in order to give the teams a 15 second warning. The umpire moves to the press box sideline with the line judge and clears the sideline in the restricted area. If given their 15 second warning by the referee, the umpire should tell the coach of the home team or the team on the press box side if it's reversed, uh, that the ball will be marked ready in 15 seconds and then the umpire counts the R players. Eight should also move up the sideline after the conference to prevent illegal conferences and to clear the sideline. H and B should move to their sideline in conjunction. H should be alert for a signal for the referee and provide a 15 second warning to the coach. Finally, H is to count the R players and ensure the chain crew is in the correct position. L, L at the same point needs to ensure that their sideline is cleared as well and looks to R to give the 15 second warning, which is then communicated to the coach. L is going to count the K players in this case and then give a signal. Uh, B 60 second count starts as soon as the brief of the conference is completed. So when that huddle breaks, back judge is going to start the 60 seconds. B grabs a new ball from the uh, upright and brings it up to the free kick position. And again, as we talked about earlier, it should already be there. Your ball personnel should have that ready to go. So your back just doesn't have to look for it. After moving up the sideline with H, uh, move out to the K 40 yard line, keep that sideline clear. And at the 40 B can move out to the kicker location, count the players and signal the rest of the crew. We hope this has been informational. We're going through the manual a little bit at a time. Hopefully this will help you. Uh, but I think that the real point here is that there's nothing that's really all that drastically changed. It's just formalizing basically what we've done for years. With that said, though, we want to thank you for joining us for episode one of Learn Your Stripes. We'll be back next week where we'll discuss starting and stopping the clock, measurements, signals, and communication, and much more. For now, though, we want to leave you with a play to consider, one that's near and dear to Michael and my heart as wings. Here's the play. Second and 10 for A at the B40. A10 throws a legal forward pass, which B32 intercepts at the B20. B32 then returns the interception along A sideline and is downed at the 50. During B32's return, H unintentionally runs into an assistant coach from the A team in the restricted area at the B45. What's your ruling? We'll discuss that play at the start of the next episode. In the meantime, if you want to let us know what your ruling would be, or if you have any questions or feel we made a mistake, please email us at learnyourstripes at gmail.com. That's learnyourstripes at gmail.com. We'll see you back here next week. In the meantime, keep learning your stripes. <laughs>